0: Oberon Sinclair is the CEO and founder of the creative and branding agency My Young Auntie. Since she founded the company in 1997, Oberon has collaborated with and managed an array of notable clients from the high luxury art, fashion, food and lifestyle sectors, including Hermes, Vivienne Westwood, Fabergé, Jack Spade, Art Forum, Selfridges, Island Records, David Lee Roth, among others. Oberon is known as the Queen of Kale for reviving an interest in the superfood across the world.
1: Oberon Sinclair, welcome to The Creative Process.
2: Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure.
1: Well, congratulations on the 25th anniversary of your boutique PR agency, My Young Auntie.
2: Thank you. I can't believe it, actually. When you say 25 years, it blows my mind.
1: And so, you know, as you trace your path, I was trying to take it all in. It's not a conventional straight line. It's more like, Working for Motown in London, and then you're over there in Hong Kong, and you're starring in a soap opera, and you're doing PR for music and Island Records and Vivian Westwood and Emirates. And, you know, I couldn't take in the whole shape of it, but what it is, is it feels like a lot of fun.
2: Well, that's that's always been my aim is to be happy and to really enjoy what I do. Churchill said, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's that's really I think maybe my wonderful father, my late father, Moggs, said that to me when I was very young. And he also loved what he did and had a lot of fun with my mother in their lives. And so they showed me by example. And I think that's what I follow. And I've always tried to do that.
1: So just tell me a little bit about the founding of My Young Auntie, how it was formed.
2: Well, I started it in 97. Before I started the company, I worked with T Street Records, which was owned by a dear friend of mine called John Baker and his wife, Siggy Golding. It was part of Ireland and I was head of PR and worked, worked with all the bands and artists like Malcolm McLaren, some fantastic PM Dawn, Stereo MCs, amazing, amazing bands. After a couple of years, he said to me, you know, you really should start your own agency. And I said, my gosh, you know, how does one do that? And he said, if you start your own agency, Abraham, I can help you. He'd also sold the company to B 2 which was a company owned by Richard Branson. So he was sort of stepping away and moving to Jamaica. And he just wanted to make sure that I was going to be OK, which was an incredible thing for him to do. And we were friends. So I started my company from my apartment in the West Village, which was literally my kitchen with the computer, one of the first computers and a telephone, you know, a rotary telephone. And I started that in 97 and he at that time was working with the British artist Jamie Reid to do a retrospective of all his punk work from back in the day, which was sort of like all the images of God Save the Queen, you know, Sex Pistols, all their album covers, Nevermind the Bollocks, all those and he was doing retrospective and new lithographs and new colors and said, I'd love you to work on that with me. So I did. And it was a huge, huge retrospective that took place in Soho back in 97 September. And it was a real smash. It was like amazing, amazing show, amazing work. And that sort of was a springboard for my young auntie. And then after that, I was literally sort of called up by Vivian Westwood. And I, I sort of thought she'd call. The wrong number you know just like would you like to help me with my launch in New York and you know I've always loved fashion but I'd never really worked in it per se so I worked with her on that and that was a lot of fun completely bonkers really fun and you know I just felt like where do you go from here well I met through friends Katie and Andy Spade and Katie was looking for someone to work with her in PR because her company was quite new and i have met with her and, and I just didn't feel buttoned up, to be honest. I was, I was a bit punky pants back then, but I didn't, you know, I've, I've never blow dried my hair. I've never done the matchy matchy thing. So I just, I was very honest and I really did need the job. Um, but I just, I declined it and I said, I'm so honored and it's so sweet, but I just, I don't think I'm right for it. And then Andy took me aside and said, I'm actually going to start a men's brand. And would you be interested in that? And you don't need to be in the office. And we could work together with my team. And so I said, yes. And that was one of my first proper accounts. I was working on a lot of music releases with like Sony. I launched my friend's band, Honky Coast, And my friend, Richard Fortas, who now plays with Guns N' Roses, was in that band. They were signed to Sony. And they were sort of fantastic, dirty rock and roll East Village band. And they were just I'm still friends with them all. They're amazing. It was a brilliant, brilliant album. And then I worked with Andy and we created Jack Spade with the name. He came up with Jack Spade. He didn't want to call it Andy Spade and created this men's brand, which was really fantastic because he's just so interesting. We still work together and I got to do 10 years of so many wonderful things. You know, we launched the brand with a canvas bifold wallet. And he said, you know, how are we going to, create jack spade you know it, it was a person that didn't exist so i went away and had the idea of creating 100 bifold canvas wallets of filling them with things that jack spade our invisible man would have in his wallet or boy would have in his wallet so we went to the free markets and we filled them with cutouts articles from playboy and this rubbish that a boy would have in his wallet we filled it with stuff like bits of string band-aids a dollar a casino chip a beer receipt a letter from a girlfriend that said you know it's over i don't want to see you anymore and then i wrapped them in new york observer newspaper and then on the inside on a scrap piece of paper i just wrote where's jack with my phone number and pencil and i sent them to all the press so i had calls from people going like oh my god you know I've got Jack Spade's wallet. And it was brilliant, celebrated by a lot of the big magazines, things, one of the best campaigns. And it was done out of fun and curiosity and always trying to make people laugh on some level and not really following any rules. And then we continued to do fun projects that were sort of very marketing heavy, PR driven, marketing driven, creative, fun, emotional. And then we did something called the Honest Campaign, where we took, you know, 10 wallets and we had. A dear friend of mine, Matt Johnson, who's a great photographer, dropped them around the city and photographed people picking them up. And then we did a survey of who returned them and where they returned them. And we made mini books called The Honest Campaign, which we sold in the Jack Spade stores. And again, you know, people just loved it. So nothing I've ever done has really felt like PR, even though that's sort of what I've said I do. I, I do wear about 50 hats daily and try to incorporate as much fun and creativity into what I do with the people around me and the people I work with.
1: It's really interesting because I think that people are coming around to this thinking of having to reinvent. It's it's definitely storytelling. It doesn't seem like PR as well.
2: It is storytelling. And when people ask me what I do, I sort of cringe a little bit because not to say anything bad about anyone or what they do, but I'm not really a PR person. I do love storytelling. I don't call people all day and pitch them. I'm very specific about what I'm doing and why I do it. And who I'm talking to. And I think everything that we work on has a story behind it. Because for me, that's more interesting. And I always put myself in the customer, the audience, and, and think about what excites me. What would excite me as opposed to just, oh, this is a job. I'm going to do an event and stand outside with a clipboard. I've, we've never done that. I've never done that. And I respect people that do. There's no good or bad. It's just I have always tried to think differently the most. Or the way I think, as opposed to differently. I mean, everyone has their own version of what they do. I wanted to always be excited and happy every day that I came to work and didn't ever feel, oh, look what I'm having to do today. And I've always been very careful about who I work with because I always wanted to be on the, on the same path, as, on the same mindset as my clients. You know, so for me, even taking on a client, you know, I've always been I've always gotten paid up front. That for me was such a, a crucial way to keep my company afloat for all these years. And, you know, that for me is if I can help other people through this podcast, for me, that was a, a vital, vital, vital part of what I've done and has kept me stable to be able to pay my employees, to be able to pay my bills and to not worry about bills. or, or You know, when I first started in 97, I worked with Sony Records with Honky Test. And because it was such a huge corporation, you know, I wouldn't get paid for months and months and months. And I'd have to, back in the day, send out 1,200 records or CDs and get the envelopes, do the postage. I mean, it would cost me thousands of dollars. I didn't have thousands of dollars. I wasn't rich. I was, you know, starting out. So I'd have to put that money out and then have to try. And, and then by the time I got reimbursed, I would never be able to catch up. I'd always be paying back backwards and forwards and it was always hard. So I just, after working with Sony, I said to myself, I'm going to ask for the money up front. I'm going to get paid on the first of the month before I do the work. And a lot of people have said to me, oh, we don't do that. And I said, well, then I'm not going to be able to survive because, you know, when people say we pay you after 30 days, who made those rules? You know, a lot of companies make interest on that money. And 25 years, every client I've worked with has paid me on the first of the month. And that way, I've never been late paying a soul. I've never been late with my bills. And that, for me, has enabled me to work in a stress-free environment.
1: Because what you're offering, it is boutique. So it's not this cookie cutter. It's not something that they would find anywhere else. It's this direct emotional connection. So you have to be an artist, actually. Just being
2: honest, if you want me to be my best self, I don't want to have any stress. You know, life is stressful enough. So if you can avoid those situations, better to be upfront. And listen, I've worked with mayor, some of the biggest campaigns they've ever had. And I'm a little agency. I'm not some big, I don't have like hundreds of people working for me. And I had to say to them, I really need to get paid upfront. And they're like, wow, well, we're so we don't really do that. And I said, well, I, I don't think I can do this. And they changed the rules and paid me. Everyone's done that. you know. Big, big companies and their big accounting departments have said to me, well, we don't work this way. And I'm like, well, I can't do it. And I, But I do say that up front when I take on a client, these are my terms. And I'm sorry if you don't like it, but this is how I survive. And this is how it keeps me, you know, I don't want to follow up on money ever. I don't actually like talking about money. Awful, awkward conversation to have ever
1: it's very interesting about your approach i was speaking with chris and you have this very one-on-one similarity in your careers and you know these big artists they could go to a huge record company but they chose chris of course island records is huge and it's now under universal music and everything but what it was from his approach, even knowing the audience or from his early days of going around with the jukeboxes, God has felt seen and heard. And what I recognize is that something that goes into your approach.
2: Well, Chris is one of my best friends. And the reason Chris is so wonderful and why he was so magnetic and magical back in the day and still is because he developed artists and his record company in london island records which was in chiswick on st mark's place which i went to It was like a house so you know back in the day when he had cat stevens and all these other amazing artists it was a big round table with bones on it you know went in there and you felt comfortable and people feel comfortable and they're in a comfortable happy environment you can do anything in life, anything, 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 which is what he's done in all these years. He wasn't corporate. And I think when you're in a stilted environment, it doesn't bring out the best in people. And that's sometimes hard because listen, you know, these big corporate companies employ people and they give them... Jobs And that's a wonderful thing. So I don't ever want to come across as being negative about that. It's just, and I actually think that these big corporations have figured out a way to make people more comfortable.
1: And the people that you work with in your creative collective, they don't necessarily come from PR.
2: I've never hired anyone with a PR background because it's it's not really the way I want to work I'm more interested in someone's personality and not coming from a PR background but really coming from a genuine place and mindset that's unique and honest yeah it's authentic
1: we have so many products in the world that this individual approach where you've got onto that you know very early is something that people crave more because it helps them narrow down with all the products something that's personal to them curated to them and I think that people are now adopting this way of thinking I hope
2: so because there's Sort of, it's an inner child thing as well with everyone. And if you can tap into that on some level, then it doesn't even have to be clever. It doesn't have to be, it just has to be, you know, sometimes the simplest ideas are the best, you know, the sweetest. I've always loved bringing interesting people together, whether it's dinner parties or whether it's travel, whether it's hotels I've worked with, and it's really fun. And so sometimes just the simple ideas are the best. But for me also... It's not always the idea, it's who you're inviting. And I always try to go out of my way to mix it up with a diverse group of people. And I mean, sort of people from all walks of life that are unexpected. And you want people to have fun and feel happy. And if you've got a room full of people from all walks of life who don't really know each other, and it's not as predictable, you will even get that element of exciting. Listen, I did the launch of Vivian Westwood. Sometimes things go wrong. Because trust me, 25 years, you have mistakes. And But I do believe that out of bad comes good. She had her big fashion show at the New York Public Library. And then I was organizing the after-dinner for the, for the fashion launch. And uh, I had the dinner in a restaurant that was opening. It wasn't open yet. And They let me host the dinner for her and her people and editors the day before it was opening. So I put 100 people together at one table. But I invited like my local deli guy. You know, I really mixed it up. I really, really sort of wanted to have an unusual mix of people. And then, you know, right in the middle of the dinner, because it was a new restaurant, the fire department walked in because they were checking permits, which almost gave me a bloody heart attack, to be honest with you. You know, big guys walking in with their equipment and they walked through the dinner and I invited them all to sit down. And she was like, oh my God, this is amazing.
1: Yes, you can bring a sense of excitement even to the chaos of things that are not quite going right. And talking about bringing people together, you're a partner at Noya House and you've also hosted these very fascinating conversations with the likes of Peter Gabriel, our fashion designers, Jason Wu or Carlos Alomar or just quite a variety of people. Tell us first, what was the concept behind House and its different locations and how you're involved in it?
2: Well, I met the founders, Alan and Joshua, who started House in 2013. They are lovely gentlemen. And they called me aside and said, we'd love to get you involved in our co-working space that we're doing. And I had my office here and it was a construction site. And I helped them you know, with the PR and launch and bring in members. Actually, I brought Chris in to have his office here, Jefferson Hack, and some other wonderful people to work out of here. And we really curated an interesting community of people and I've had really much everyone, a lot of interesting people do talks from Paul Smith to Salman Rushdie to the Wu Tang clan to, you know, Tom Sachs, Ariana Huffington. I mean, a list. And I've hosted Prince William and Princess Kate from the UK. We've had some incredible people here and I, I love talking to people and I love hosting these conversations. I did one last night with my dear friend, Carlos Alomar, who was the musical director in, in a long time collaborator with David Bowie for 30 years, and I just love people's stories. So for me, it's like inspirational. We had the talk with him last night. We had an amazing crowd, a lot of young students from NYU and the new school. And the one thing I like to do is to inspire people, not me, but if I can show them someone's life, it's a way for people to learn. You know, I, I didn't go to college. I barely went to school. I left at a very young age. I wasn't really an academic, I was more a visual. And I learned by seeing and by working with people. And that really was my passion. And, you know, we all have different ways of learning and doing. And for me, that was the way for me to learn was to work with people. And I did that at a young age. So I still continue to learn, you know, I I don't claim to know it all. And if I don't know something, I'll say I don't know something. And so... For me, having these people come and talk is a way to inspire the younger generation or people to know that they can be brave and they can go out and they can do these things that they didn't think they could do, you know. Listen, a few years ago, um, I picked up My daughter's watercolours from her bedroom and started painting. I'd never painted anything in my life. And then I put one of the paintings on Instagram. A year later, Tori Birch gave me an art show and one of her thoughts. I mean, anyone can do anything. There are no rules in life if you're given that permission. And I think that's why these talks are important for me, because I'm lucky to know these wonderful people. They're all inspiring, great people. that have done wonderful things. But it's a way for me to show their mediums and to help inspire people and to let them have the permission to know that they can do anything they want. You know, we're all sent to school. We're also raised in a, in a pretty uniform way. I was, especially in England. It was very strict. If the younger generation had given permission to try different things, rather than sit in the classroom all day and all night, which I don't think is that healthy. I feel like that's a, another whole topic is education and how I think that could change and help children because they all have different ways of learning. And I think sitting in a classroom all day I don't think is the best thing. But really these talks for me are a way of giving back. And I try not to say too much because it's really about the people speaking and the subject matters and what they have to offer and what they've done and and how they did it and the process, which is, for me, the journey and the process is so interesting.
0: A big lesson that I took away from this podcast is about inclusivity and being authentic. In today's day and age, it can be easy to build a glamorous yet fake persona in order to impress other people. However, when you take a step back and try to understand your audience as a whole, you can garner a true relationship with them instead of solely trying to capture their attention for a short amount of time. I think Oberon Sinclair brought up some very interesting points in her interview, especially regarding creativity and respecting simplicity. I personally believe that it's easy to sometimes get wrapped up into the idea that bigger is better, which, throughout this episode, Oberon shows us that it's not necessarily true. People can be interested in the simplicity and respect the creative aspect of it as well. Moreover, in these projects, it's important to find the joy of it. Everyone deserves the opportunity to do something that they find fun. And this just leads to making sure that we garner a fostering environment for everyone trying to find their way in the world. Not every life path needs to be a strict academic regime, but rather letting people explore their talents and be able to showcase their capabilities, even if it's not the traditional norm. It's important to realize that there is not a right or wrong way to go about life or anything in general, Rather, it's about letting people figure out what works or what doesn't work for them. Overall, this interview really highlights the value of the arts and using it as a way to connect to as many people, whether it's locally or all around the world. Now, back to the interview
1: yes of course I mean we're called the creative process so we very much believe in that and there's so much specialization now and so people complain about these silos you know breaking out of the silos to understand there's people other parts of the world people in different disciplines just as you said you throw these parties and you bring in unexpected elements so I think that that is really Mm -hmm. important and it's so helpful to hear that you have this lifelong learning mission because it's not all in the classroom I think that there's some great teachers in classrooms so obviously I mean
2: you know at some point I make try and go back to an education and learn because it's an amazing thing to do. I just wasn't really that inspired by the teachers I had. They were very Charles Dickens and I went to a very strict private school, you know, where I had to wear white gloves and a beret and a voter hat. And if I didn't, I'd go into detention. So I was in detention for most of my school days. So, you know, it didn't thrill me.
1: Also the fact that it depends on which school or you might be stuck. Some people don't know. They've been told all their life that maybe they're good at this or that kind of a path is forged for them and they don't get to encounter something else in them. They don't know that they have other talents just because they don't get to encounter it. So I think that what you're doing, this kind of salon environment. Now, Neue House, that's open then? Because I thought it was kind of like a membership.
2: But you know, when I do events, I open my list to people from outside.
1: Well, that is lovely because then also when people are so accomplished in their careers, they love to hear from the audience and their new interpretations and how a next generation may be taking it in a new direction. And I was so taken back when I heard your story about you're the queen of kale. And I was like, wow, I love kale.
2: You did it as a guerrilla campaign, really to prove... Well, it
1: worked. It worked.
2: It worked. And now I'm known as vegetable royalty, which is actually slightly hilarious, but... I did something. It was fun. And I tried to prove something. And it worked. Right. It did work. It did. There was no money involved. I didn't make any money off the campaign. I did create the American Kale Association. And I saw it as a trend. and I am a trend forecaster. I do see things. Other people do, but I, I specifically look for upcoming trends in everything, in anything, because I'm curious. And I spotted Kale. And I went for it. And I just started PRing it. And it was a lot of fun to do it. It's still fun. I still get calls and it was a, a fantastic exercise i mean as i've said out of these the campaigns wonderful things have happened i was called up shortly after that campaign went global by a fantastic man called joseph Bundra, who i'm still very good friends with and he's the ceo of trident seafoods his father is the founder of the company and and Sadly, Chuck Bundren recently passed away. But a wonderful, wonderful man, Joe and his wife, Mary, came to New York and we had dinner and he said, listen, my family own this company. I run it. We're in Alaska and Seattle and we are the biggest providers of Wild Alaska Pollock. It's the best, most sustainable seafood in the world, the cleanest, but we need help. Can you help me? I said, yeah, I'd love to. I mean, what a challenge. I don't know much about seafood, but he flew me out to Alaska, which I had to tell you was breathtakingly beautiful. And I went on the boats with the fishermen, like seven-hour journeys with these fishermen. And that took my daughter with me on the first trip. And it was just astoundingly wonderful. First of all, I'm curious about people and these fishermen and their lives are so hard. And then we went to the plant and saw the processing and how they catch the fish and the waters. And I saw every element to a wild Alaska pollock. And he said it's the the cleanest, most sustainable fish in the world. And so I did put a campaign together and called it because I I did say it at first. Couldn't I change the name? And he said, unfortunately, no. So I did come up with a sub-brand name, which was Superfish, because of the superfood element kale and acai. And we did some campaigns. I did a shoot with Vogue in Alaska. I planted it on different menus in Chicago, San Francisco, New York. We launched it in so many different restaurants and it's doing really, really well. And we're still very good friends. And I loved working with him. He's the most passionate, kind. And he has about at least 2,000 employees that work for him. And he knows all their names. And for me, that's everything. That, for me, is just a magical, magical thing. You know, when I went to the processing plant in Alaska, there was this fantastic woman that washed all the employees' clothes because, you know, you're working in a fish plant in Alaska, you smell like fish. And there's a woman that that does all the washing for the employees. She blesses the washing and she prays over the washing every day. She's been there for 30 years. But for me, it melted my heart. It, It made me love the company, love Joe, love his wife, love his family, love his morals. And... There's nothing better in life when you work with someone that's a good person. Years ago, I met—I was lucky enough to meet the CEO of Mars Chocolates. And I love chocolates. And I love sweets. I sat next to the plane, and he invited me to the chocolate factory, which really was a dream country for me. And I went with this with the CEO and his name is Grant. And he walked me around the factory and the company. And, you know, he knew every employee's name. He knew their families and was Mary, how so and so. And that's that's how that's how life should be. People should care. Can't just be employees and numbers. And that's why people like Joe Bundren and Grant are amazing people. And that makes a difference. And that's why People work for people like that for a very long time. But I remember Joe describing the people in his company and I said, they're all so wonderful, but you're so wonderful. Why is that? He said, my company is a little bit like Misfit Toys. And And I I love that.
1: When you're thinking about that's a long standing brand, but with newer brands or trying to communicate the history of a product or a company and that you have these stories behind it, the woman who is blessing or washing. And how do you compress it into the minutiae of, say, the fonts or the colors and all those details that have to communicate so much behind it?
2: I took editors with me to visit these places and I showed them. I didn't hide that stuff. I showed it because I always want the stuff that's hidden to be seen. I want those people that are doing the not so glamorous jobs to be seen. And I think, you know, full disclosure and all these people and all these companies, you know, we want to celebrate people that have been the longest employee, even if it's the women making cups of tea every day. Those people are interesting. Everyone has a story. Everyone's important and everyone wants to feel loved. That's really what it comes down to at the end of the day.
1: We call it here the invisible arts. And there's a lot of people who are behind the scenes, and that might be people working in PR. It could be the producers, or as you say, it's someone who's working a long time.
2: If someone comes to me and they say, oh, I have a new brand, it's a startup. First of all, I have to like the person. They have to like me. It's a two-way street. And that's the most important thing with anyone in life, not just work. In life, why do we make friends with who we make friends with? they're relationships. And if you connect with someone, magic will happen. If you don't connect with someone and someone doesn't understand or have the same aesthetic or a similar way of thinking, you have to have something in common with someone. And if you have those qualities, which I look for, just honesty and loyalty and they're genuine, and you just know if you're going to get on with someone or not. And if you don't, it's not going to work. Doesn't matter how much money someone has, the top this, the top that, the top art director, it's just not gonna work because that magic, whatever that is, it's not gonna be that. And I do believe in magic, I do. Magical stuff, not magical, anything weird, but I do believe in that energy. I do, I always have.
1: There are artists who are very good and don't have their personal skills in terms of getting on with people, but they're exacting, like they're after a certain perfection or a vision.
2: I mean, I also have a sense of humor, I like to laugh, I like to play music in the office. I tell jokes, I like to watch documentaries, I like to watch funny things, vintage, new. I don't think there's any right or wrong way. And I don't like perfection or everything having to be perfect because I'm a bit scruffy. You know, I barely brush my hair, but I do wear flowers in my hair because it makes me happy. And I do like to get dressed up every day and wear an outfit if it's a vintage dress, you know, from years ago or something that makes me happy. Whatever that is, whatever that is, I like to start my day feeling happy. And that could be a blue sky. You know, I I grew up in London. We had gray skies every day. You know, if I see a blue sky, I put it on my Instagram.
1: Tell us about your time as a soap opera star.
2: Oh, that's hilarious. I was a concert promoter in Hong Kong at 19. I was a young entrepreneur and I used to bring nostalgia bands to perform for the expats in Hong Kong, like Mary Wilson, the Platters, the Commodores. Unbelievable, crazy stories that should be in a book one day, probably right. And then at the time, my boyfriend who lived there was on TV, Edward, and I'd go pick him up from his studio. He did a talk show every day called Eye on Hong Kong. And I'd go pick him up at his studio and his producer, Aaron Lee, asked me to screen test for a soap opera they were doing. And I said, don't be ridiculous. And he said, no, 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 we want you to screen test. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. And I did. And they offered me the part which was bonkers. So I was in a soap opera for a couple of years and I played a young mother of two children and my best friend played my husband. And it was hilarious. It was on twice a week. And I played this young mother that drove a polka dot Jeep around Hong Kong. So it was like, absolutely fabulous before that show launched which i also launched in new york later down the line you know and my catchphrase was ding dong taken from the late great phillips Phillips, who died this week who was my hero and he'd say like well hello ding dong so i used to say ding dong and pull my hair up and go ding dong and something funny happened you know, little Chinese kids would come up to me in the supermarket on a Sunday morning, you know, have, having been out the night before at 20, a little bit hungover. And they're just like, ah, oh, Jessica Date, That was my name. Ding dong. You know, very, very sweet. Very sweet. funny.
1: That sounds like a new brand and they're making ding dong. There's a new TikTok.
2: Isn't there a cake here called a ding dong, Miller?
1: Yes. I'm just thinking about there new brands because I'm thinking about TikTok. Oh, As
2: you mean ding mean. dong. We could start ding dong instead of TikTok. You're right.
1: Yes, maybe make it a little
2: Could do a sweet oh. version, watch all the people listening be like, That's a great idea. <laughs> Hand us both in first.
1: You're involved in doing videos or commercials. And as you think about storytelling through PR or marketing or creative direction, you know, journalism in the recent decades has gone through this evolution. How do you feel that the world of PR marketing has changed? And is there a kind of parallel? How is it adapting to the new scene?
2: I don't know if I've adapted. I mean, I, I know the people I know and I'm old school. I like to connect on the telephone. I like to actually pick the phone up and call people. I like to hear people's voices. I know it's more convenient for people to email and text. But I do like actually listening to someone's voice and talking to them on the phone. And I, I'm still in touch with a lot of editors that I've known, you know, for 25 plus years who started off as juniors. They're now in top positions as editor-in-chiefs, directors, producers, movie stars, pop stars. These are people who I've grown up with who are now in amazing positions. But as far as the medium of PR, It's like any field, it's always gonna change, it's gonna get more advanced, it's gonna get better technology. I adapt in some ways, but not always.
1: Right. And I'm, I'm always
2: I'm almost going backwards sometimes to be honest.
1: No, it makes sense because I think and it's not a nostalgia. But I think that the increased pace of things, and we've had discussions about this. You know, our technologies get faster and faster, but the human brain is still. You know, we're born with our biology until we invent the implant that completely makes us robots. I'm trying to slow down a little bit.
2: The world in itself is a lot of stress going on in the world, and you know, food, homelessness, politics. I mean, you stop and think, you could really be not want to get out of bed in the morning. I try to. Really focus on the good and not the bad as much as possible. You know, I really try to keep my surroundings. You know, we have little roses here that Willa brought in to the office. Try to not overload my brain. I can't do it all. I can only do what I can do. And I don't beat myself up and I don't try to be busy for the sake of being busy. I do what I can do and I stop when I need to stop. And the older I get, the more I know, less is more. I'm not trying to do everything. I'm not trying to go to every event. I'm trying to really do what's important for me, my friends and my family and my business. And that's all I can do.
1: And I think that's another, not to see it in the frame of a trend, but I think that there is this great movement towards wellness because people recognize the thing is that there's just too much. There's like an onslaught of so many things. So people who can help narrow the bandwidth and help them just regain that more personal time, appreciating their real life. Virtual life is wonderful. We're speaking over a screen, but those real connections, and I really get that sense from speaking with you about that. I was just looking at, because we were having discussions about technology, and I was looking at the old Pathé newsreels, and we were discussing arts of persuasion, different things like this. And mm-hmm. you, you listen to the old radio.
2: Yeah, I still listen to you, by the way. I love, I have a radio at home.
1: And there's this real charm and innocence. It's like trying to imagine when there was very few advertisements or there were very few channels. I mean, I don't know what you get from when you see those things. That's what I
2: do. I love going to flea markets. I love buying children's books, children's things. I look at everything for inspiration. There's no, no bars held back from me. I really don't go down that rabbit hole of book covers and design and food packaging and travel. And my brain, you know, sometimes it's a lot to take in because I'm just looking at everything as much as possible. And I'm taking it in for another day. I'm like, oh, that, I remember that. I walk past this and da-da-da. It's a location it's a magazine if it's a toy you know i did a campaign recently and i took connect four it was a campaign for cp jones the pajama company and we did it with my good friend jill cardman at the Cara hotel and we shot in the bar the famous bar there and you know we took connect four and we had her playing connect four and her pajamas with one the bum it was really fun and ridiculous and great and it resonates with people because we've all got inner you know, children you know i'm still a little girl at heart That doesn't go away. You don't suddenly become a grown-up, become the most sensible person on the planet.
1: Yeah, I think we all have this longing to return to this, they say, the uncarved block or something. You know, when you can connect that with brands or stories or artists, when we could remember when life was new.
2: I don't feel like I left that. I still feel like I, I am there. I grew up, but I don't feel like my brain left those memories and those feelings. I changed, you know, I'm a mother of a wonderful daughter, but I still tap into those feelings. I didn't suddenly play a role of a grown-up I am a grown-up but I also love children's things and children's toys and I get inspired by stuff like that anything doesn't mean because we're grown-ups we have to stop all that stuff
1: it's actually a great skill to maintain the innocence through maturity because obviously we have to live in life and you have these responsibilities and I think that that's maybe the meaning of life is maintaining mm-hmm. that beauty yeah
2: I collect like Little mini, mini matchbox vintage cars and sweet things like that, you know.
1: So you're a collector, you're a curator, you're taking this in and kind of it's an unconscious level somehow, maybe. And I don't know if there's that science of, you said, trend forecasting. That's such a
2: grown-up word. I don't even know why I said that. That makes me sound like I work in a lab, you know, forecasting, you know, bionic peas or something. Listen, anyone that's in the world that's walking around, that's going to a flea market, that's in life, sees things that people like that are out there that make sense. I don't think I have any special skills. I think we all have them. I think we're open to different things. I think I just look and see what would be fun and what exciting, whether it's going back or going forward and what would make sense. Well, it's common sense or ridiculousness. It's a mad mix of both.
1: Yeah. And also having that blurring of the boundaries and just being bullshy and starting an association. I think that just being able to connect with people.
2: Yeah. It's also a case of like me looking in my wardrobe, which, you know, can be very stressful. When you say stress in my life, sometimes looking in my wardrobe because I love clothes. I love them so much. I love vintage clothes and new and old. And for me, it's an emotional way of decorating or being a Christmas tree every day and putting different ornaments on. And, you know, when I look at my wardrobe, sometimes it's not as organized as it could be. And that's brought me to a new idea I have, which is what I'd love to develop if anyone out there wants to help me. I have an amazing idea, global idea, as to how all men and women and people that own clothes can organize their clothes. And that that's come out of a need for me. And it would, it would make me really happy. So that's something I'd like to work on next. I just need to find a, a, the right tech partner and someone else that, that wants to help me do it. But it's, it's something that's possible and it would, I think it would help a lot of people around the world in a good way.
1: Yes, it sounds interesting. I think a lot of us do encounter that organizational, just not even just the closets. Well, Just looking in at general- the,
2: your, your wall from where I'm sitting, you look very organized.
1: You're not seeing the 360. I want
2: full disclosure. I want full disclosure.
1: I am organized. I have to be, I guess, but I'm a painter. I'm like all over the place, but (laughs) I guess in some ways. But thank you. I appreciate that. I think that the organization, this is a really essential part, actually, of creativity is being, you know, it's the two valves, the freedom, being able to go off and then being able to rein it in to give it structure. And that's also one of the big challenges, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it does help to be organized. The older I get, the more I want, the more organization I want. I'm sure I drive my daughter bonkers, but it does help. It does help to be organized. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes being messy is okay because something inspires you from that too. be a lovely mess, I call it. Yeah.
1: So tell me, with all the artists, the creatives, and also within the business sector that you have collaborated with or observed, what were some of those lessons that were really important to you that you learned from this? Like, wow, that's an approach. That's something that I'll remember. I mean,
2: for me, the money part was important because it's made me feel secure. And when people feel secure and not stressed about money, which we all have done at some point in our lives, it gives you the freedom to do what you want. And that's not a case of needing to buy stuff, but just the freedom to not have to worry in these stressful times of the world, you know, and really choosing the right partners to work with and trusting your gut and always pushing the envelope, which is what I've tried to do a little bit without being obnoxious, you know, in a, in a polite way. I've worked with so many different people and fields from music to travel to food to all kinds of companies. I've loved everyone I've worked with, really. I really have. And even the employees I've had that worked for me. I'm. I just feel incredibly blessed. You know, it's 25 years, which went very, very quickly. I do know that time goes very quickly. And now I'm just, I'm very appreciative of my time and value it. And I think that's the one thing I'm super aware of now is time and not wasting it.
1: Yeah. Well, you obviously have great creative instincts and this ability to build families, we can say. They're creative families.
2: Yeah, they are friends. Friends and people you work with become your family. They do, for sure.
1: As you think about the future and the importance of creative disciplines, the arts... Uh, the kind of world that we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember?
2: Oh, I hope there become changes in education because I think there are children that could do so much in the world and they're not given the right examples. They're not given, you know, that some of these schools and these poor neighbourhoods don't have what they should have. I think they should put an emphasis on music and dancing. I think more dance, more more music, more playtime. I think there's far too much homework for children these days. I think it's disgraceful. Really I do. I think it's not fair. I was young and had homework and I'd go play on the streets or in the garden with my friends and and you know, the amount of homework children get nowadays is shocking to me. That's no way to live, you know. I've I've so many different thoughts on this and could go on and on, but I, I think would love the younger generation to know there are no rules, you know. And, and you can do anything in life and you can do one thing and then you can stop and do something else and not have the pressure just to decide that you go to college for one thing and do that for the rest of your life. that you could actually stop halfway through and say, you know what, I'm going to try something else. And we're not given that freedom. And I think I'd love to see a way for the younger generation to be given that freedom. Everyone can be creative. It's not an exclusive club. My husband is a very successful recording artist and he's self-taught.
1: Exactly. I can see it in your own life. You're autodidactic and it's the importance is technique, of course, but also most importantly, that the thing has its reason for being. It comes from you and you've certainly shared yours with us. So thank you, Oberon Sinclair, for oh. helping us understand the stories behind artists and brands and the world of creative direction, the art of public relations. And just storytelling, pure and simple. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Rhea Patel, digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbart. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope that you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.